a podcast made by Watford fans, fans for Watford fans from the rookery end. Welcome to another From the Rookery End Shorts. Uh, my name is John, with me is Mike. Hello. Uh, and we've just been on the phone to someone, haven't we, Mike? We've been uh, lucky enough to speak to uh, Michael Calvin, respected writer and journalist, been, uh, been around for a long time. A lot of Watford fans listening might know him for his views on, on Watford because he's been, I guess it's fair to say, he's been quite outspoken about how he feels about the direction Watford have been since the, uh, since the Pozzo takeover. I think people might have a, perhaps have an opinion about him, but one thing that has to be said, regardless of your opinion on his views on Watford, is the books that he's created over the well over his career have been, been incredible. Some of the ones I've read recently have been... And I'm not just saying it because because we're on the phone to him. I don't think we'd bother to phone him unless we 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 liked what he'd done. But um, the Nowhere Men was about scouting, really really fascinating insight, and also Family, which is probably perhaps the most famous one, where he um, he was embedded with Millwall for a whole season, which is you know unprecedented access. Really, he was literally sat on the bench, he was in the changing room, all over the shop. So really interesting guy and uh, just a fascinating person to talk to. We chat to him um, about the new book, which is called Living on the Volcano. The Secret of Surviving as a Football Manager. Uh, in the book, he speaks to countless uh, current football managers from the top to the bottom of the pyramid, uh, four of which are former Watford managers. Kenny Jackett, Brendan Rodgers, Sean Dyche and A.D. Boothroyd. Um, and he particularly uh, has some interesting things to say about Kenny Jackett. Uh, so here's our chat with him. He's a very good talker. Uh, this isn't a short podcast, really. It's about half an hour or so. Yeah, make yourself comfortable. And uh, enjoy. So, Mike, you you got to interview countless managers uh, for this book. What do they all have in common? They've all got the virus. There probably is no known cure for it, really. They're all obsessional to to varying degrees. They're infinitely curious about one another. That was one of the strange things about it, because it's it's an insanely competitive profession. And uh, word got around that of what I was up to. So I'd be going to see managers, and they'd say, oh, you saw so-and-so last week, did you? What's he do then? And how's he do it? And so so there is that sort of relentless quest for, for self-improvement, I suppose. I, I, what I wanted to do with the book was actually just to to put some of their work into a, into a broader context, almost like humanise what is or can be, certainly, a dehumanising job, because you know, we're, we, when we look at successful football managers... You know, we expect them to be decisive and, 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 and sort of innately authoritative figures. And, you know, they've got to come up with solutions. They can't be, you know, they have, a, they have a whole range of problems to deal with. But actually, when you look at them as people, they're just like you and I. They've got their own fears. They've got their own faults, their failings, their foibles. And it was actually getting that out of them, that humanity about them, and why they did the job. That was part of it. Because it is a job which you know, attracts, you know, so much scrutiny. And, and uh, most managers, that, that was what I found great about the book, was that they they found almost that there was a release in being asked questions that they don't normally get asked because, you know, they, they're conditioned to hiding any weakness that they, they, they may feel that they have. But here they were answering a need where a lot of them just said to me, look, we know we live in an age of... of you know, social media and Twitter and Snapchat and everything else. And we know that is an age of, of, of instant judgment and usually quite harsh judgment, sometimes abusive judgment. We are being judged 
by people who don't really know us. So that was the, that was why they wanted to do you know, to, to, to submit themselves to the interviews I did, and I, you know I, I spent quite a lot of time with them, which is you know a great privilege for me because time is their greatest luxury because most of them haven't got it. Yeah, there, there was a particularly horrifying bit, Mike, that, that I think you mentioned in the previous interview about Carl Robinson being accosted, yeah. uh, and you know that just really did bring it home. And hopefully, guys who and, and girls who do read the book, football sports read the book perhaps take a step back when they when they when they hear that story in in the book there's an interesting stat i think you say it's 56 percent of first-time managers yeah don't go on to get a don't go on to get a second job now you were lucky enough we would say lucky enough because we're a watford podcast to interview four people who have held the the managerial role at, at watford they've all gone on to to secure second jobs it'd be interested to hear your take on on how you think they've done it but let's take someone who i know you know very well kenny jacket he he's gone on after Watford. What what is it that that allowed him to sort of buck the trend, as it were, and 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 continue to forge a career after Watford? Yeah, Ken, it's interesting. You know, we've known each other uh, since we were kids. We both grew up on the Hollywell Estate together in in, in Watford. Our dads knew one another, and it's funny that we've we've sort of followed each other's careers over good, good lord, you know, <laughs> too many years to to think about. But one thing about Ken was that. You know, he had, he still, there's, when I talked talk to Ian Holloway about him, and he said there's still a bit of rage inside Ken because, you know, he had that knee injury which curtailed his career. But in a sense, it, it, it formed his life. And a lot of, a lot of players talk about, uh, sorry, a lot of managers talk about, um, <clears throat> you know, the, the, the way the, the, there was a fragility to life in football, you know, you're one injury away from, from unemployment. Uh, but with what happened with Ken was that, he basically he worked as a coach, and worked in youth development and at, you know at Watford. Uh, you know, obviously learned a lot under Graham Taylor, and you know he probably worked for four or five years without getting paid. And I think that's part of the game that people don't really understand that that was his almost like unpaid apprenticeship, and and that ha- that happens all the time, um, you know, within the game. And you know he had to make sacrifices to build his coaching credentials, if you like. And the reason why Ken will always get a job and he's never been out of work is that he is a fantastic development coach. I did a book called Family, Life, Death and Football, mm-hmm. which was looking at a season with Millwall uh, under Ken. And I spoke to his, his, his brother, Alan. We, he was one of, one of my brothers. We had a, he had a birthday celebration in, in Las Vegas, all places, and I shared a room with Alan. He was talking to me about the sort of problems and the, and the and the culture that Ken had to deal with when he was at Millwall, and uh, when I phoned Ken and said, "Look, you know, Alan's been speaking to me. I really want to get inside this football club, and you know, will you basically let me do anything I want? In other words, you know, can I be in the dressing room? Can I be on the bench? Can I go into your coaches' meetings? Can I be with the board? Blah blah blah." And it, it took him about ten seconds to say yes, which was fantastic for me. And I learned a lot about Ken in that year in terms of his mastery of the of the basic psychology of a footballer. He is a very, very uh, detailed coach, hugely organized, quietly ruthless. Um, and those type of um, qualities are, are, you know, in, in, in modern football, essential. And he got his job, for instance, at... Um, uh, at Wolves, where he's, where he's basically, you know, he's recreated a culture there, 
over the last two years. He got his job there simply because not of what he achieved at Millwall, which was over five and a half seasons, which is a really difficult club to manage, got them up from the from League One into the Championship, onto the FA Cup semi-final, but wasn't because of those sort of headline achievements. It was because of what he'd done with Graham at Watford, what he'd done at Swansea. In, in, he he actually started to create a culture at Swansea. Uh, you know, he identified, for instance, Gary Monk, uh, who's now obviously a you know a terrific young manager at, at Swansea. He identified him as his as his major captain. Uh, and and it's interesting talking to Gary about Ken, where he says that he owes so much on a personal level to to, to Ken's coaching and his faith. But he said we learn because everyone everyone at Swan everyone looks at Swansea and think well. Yeah, Brendan Rodgers, a yeah, terrific coach, as people, you know, people at Watford don't know, no. Roberto Martinez. But actually, he said, you've got to drill right down. Ken was the one who actually instilled a willing, a winning mentality. And that's that's something, you know, I know it's a very long-winded answer to your question, but, you know, that is, that is a key, that he has that winning mentality. And what people and players respond to is his essential honesty. You know, he will he will tell them the truth, and that and that, that truth hurts. It's all, it's almost it's interesting that you mentioned Brendan in 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 that answer, Mike, because it almost mm. sounds as if Ken's not just unsung hero is probably not the the right way of describing him. But you mentioned him to Watford fans, and they probably imagine quite a nice, smiley, gentle, approachable guy, which he obviously is. But mm. but I've read read your other books, and and I understand the. That that ferocity with him and the attention to detail. So I know the sort of the guy that you're describing. But you mentioned Brendan in 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 that answer, Mike, and his his trajectory, his career trajectory has been a lot more um, upwardly mobile, much quicker. Mm. So how different is he as a character? Because he's he's obviously made mistakes along the way, but he's ended up managing someone who's who potentially should be challenging in Europe at the top of the Premier League, and and Kenny Jackett's still in the Championship. So so what's the difference between those two guys? There's an element of football being a fashion business, and, and Brendan was, was fashionable. Again, there's someone who's learned a lot through failure. Left Watford to go to, to, to Reading, didn't last very long there. He says in the book, you know, when he went away from Reading, he, he, he wrote down about 10 pages about how he would do things differently. There is, with Brendan, I think, you know, something I talked about quite a bit within the book, but he has this ability to compartmentalise his life and, and put the personal and and the professional on one side. So he's a very hard guy. And there was a line when we were talking which actually struck me as, as sort of fundamental to his personality, which is when he talked about his father, Malachi. His, his mum and dad died within a, within a year, tragically, very prematurely. Um, his mum was 52, Malachi was 57, 58, something like that. And he told the story of his dad. He said, look, my dad's my hero and will always be my hero. And, uh, but he said he taught me the greatest lesson in life. And it was about having... Um, his dad was a, a, essentially an old job man. He was brilliant with his hands. And he, and he worked for a local businessman who obviously used him to you know, do bits and bobs around the place. And uh, he paid um, Brendan's dad on a Friday. And one week, he left to go on holiday and for whatever reason, didn't pay Brendan's dad. And, and as Brendan said, I saw, I looked in my dad's eyes and I saw him panicking because, one, he didn't know how, many, how he could afford petrol to take me to training. But two, much more importantly, 
he didn't know how he was going to put food on the family table for the following week. And he said, at that moment, I, I, uh, I promised myself I would never be beholden to anyone else. And that is the, that is the, the key to Brendan in terms of his personality, that there is a toughness there. People judge him on superficialities, and to a degree, he encourages them to do so, because, you know, he lives his life through these sort of shankly sound bubbles that come out. But actually, there's a lot more to Brendan, there's a lot more emotional intensity to him than meets the eye. Uh, and there's that toughness again. You know, we talk about Ken being tough. Brendan is the same in terms of, uh, you know, he went through a pretty roller coaster year last year, um, and he's still under pressure now. And it is interesting to watch him work under pressure. And the intensity of his ambition comes through, and I think that recognises people. He's also a very, very good politician. I used to talk to Ken when he was at Millwall, and, and, and he accepted. He said, the one thing that I've got to learn in football management is I've got to be better at managing upwards, i.e. managing not just your team and your coaching staff and your support staff, but also managing the boardroom, managing the owners. And because the, 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 the nature of modern management is changing um, so that managers have to understand the, the environment now that they're working in. So, for instance, when Chrissy Hewton um, was sacked by Norwich, you know, we met when he was unemployed and he was, it was as though he'd lost a limb because you know, it was the first time for 35 years that he'd not been involved in the pre-season. Spent time together, but he then went away and took a course on, on corporate management so that he could better understand the thought processes of the owners and directors and, you know, who have different priorities today, and, you know, as you guys know at Watford. With Brendan, you call him in the book um, the one manager that every young British manager wants to succeed. Um, mm. How do you think the next British manager is going to be in charge of a top six club in the Premier League, what is it they have to do to be a big manager? They have to be extremely fortunate. They have to have the sort of personality which generates faith. They have to prove that they're more than a fashion statement. I look around at the moment. If you look at top six jobs, I would say that the the next job, it will be very difficult for uh, a British manager to go into Manchester United. That job's probably earmarked for Ryan Giggs. Manchester City see themselves as a global, multinational, multicultural marketing operation. That will require a Pep Guardiola or a Jurgen Klopp or someone, you know, a, 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 a manager of absolute global stature. Arsenal after Arsene Wenger will be interesting, but um, one assumes that they will go. Uh, for, for a manager of similar magnitude. Chelsea, well, who knows what's going to happen there. Mourinho may well end up trying to build a dynasty there. That's what a lot of his peers say. You know, there's been a lot of um, stuff flurrying around him at the moment, but a lot of the fellow managers say, we just sign that four-year contract. I know he's very, very insecure, and, and, and he has this sort of three- or four-season mentality, but a lot of the guys think, he could try and do a you know, do a Wenger or do a Ferguson and try and become a dynastic manager there for over, say, eight to ten years. Liverpool, they had faith in Brendan. Tottenham may be a top-six club that you could get in. 
I was hugely impressed by Gary Monk. Uh, I was hugely impressed by uh, Sean Dyche, who I think even now his achievement in getting Burnley up uh, on you know the the equivalent of shiny buttons is is is, is absolutely um, you know been under undervalued completely. That, that was going to be um, our next question, actually, Mike. Sorry, to, sorry to right, interject because no, no, we've yeah. we've we've had the good fortune to meet meet Sean Dyson a number of occasions and, and interview him. Yeah, and and he seems to be. I mean, you talk about Brendan Rodgers compartmentalising and and Kenny Jacket perhaps having a slightly different um, outward persona to to what his actual you know drive is all about. Sean struck us as a guy who would immediately have the the respect of anyone he met, not just because he's a big tough guy, but because he's friendly, personable. Um, and and just eminently professional the whole time. He just seems like a a great guy um, who enjoys his work and is good at what he does. Is that is that fair? Yeah, yeah. Again, it's very easy. Well, as he, you know, he, he says of himself, he says, "When you look like me, you know, people make judgments on you. Yeah. You know, they think they think I was this. I think what's the phrase he used? They think I'm this. You know, this mentalist footballer <laughs> who used, used to kick people up in the air. But as he said, you know, throughout his career, I think he said he was sent off once or something." without, you know, that's off the top of my head, but he looks the part, you know, he looks the sort of, you know, with, with that sort of the little goatee, the, the shaven head, the, you know, the broad shoulders, he either looks like something out of a Sweeney, you know, one of those old detectives who used to fit up the local, the local villains, or, 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 or the proverbial nightclub bouncer, but actually, he's a really intelligent guy, he, again, he's got that resilience, you know, I, I thought what happened to him at Watford was a disgrace. You know, he just sort of brushed it aside. It's, you know, it happens. You know, and 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 it does happen. He's right that you know, as a manager, sometimes you are in the wrong pl- or the right place at the wrong time. Yeah. You know, and and that happened to him. You know, when Zola came in, and and you know that was you know, I thought absurd, but that he paid that price. The one thing I I loved about Sean was he said, "Look, I'm not a dinosaur," but there was a perspective about him where he, when he talked about young players, he makes the point that in the old days, now that sounds a terrible phrase, doesn't it? But, <laughs> you know, I had uh, I had played 200 senior games before I earned a contract, which basically you'd recognise as being half-decent. Yeah. And he says, now there are players within the youth system who are basically confused because they are earning more than Sean ever earned as a player. And they're probably never going to kick a ball in their first team. Mm. And so basically, by the time they're 21, see, these kids have been in the game because of this fatuous academy system. You've got kids going in at eight. They probably got their first association with uh, an agent or a, a representative by the time they're about 14. They've probably got a boot deal when they're 16. They've got a big contract by the time they're 17 or 18. And at 21... They've probably gone out on loan if they're lucky and, 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 and got 16 games under their belt. Now, as, as Sean says, look, basically, it's understandable. These, these kids are confused. They've been paid a hell of a lot of money, almost to the point of it being completely life-changing for them. Mm. But they've never played in their own, at their own football club. Those sort of conflicting messages, I think, I think are, it's a really important area of the game that we've got to look at where modern football is a uh, quick-fix culture, so it's 
get the proverbial Carlos kicker ball in because he's you know let's get someone from from uh, let's say let's get someone in from La Liga. Well, actually, they're not paid very much in La Liga. You can pick up a really good player, a really good player, on decent money um, from probably anywhere between fourth and um, you know tenth within the La Liga. They don't earn much money, you know. So they are going to come to England. They are going to be attracted to the to the financial um, power of the of the Premier League. But you know, I do I, I have I have great sympathy with the FA because you know, where are these young kids going to get a game? And and so that's where we go back to the uh, you know I know I've, I've had a lot of stick in the past from Watford fans about my opposition to the to the business principles of, of the Potsos, but I cannot see how a club like Watford, which had a fantastic uh, academy system, it prided itself on, on giving young players a chance, I cannot see how that can be uh, reconciled with a business principle, which means you get guys in, uh, you play them, you, you inflate their prices and then you sell them. Or you, you make sure that those players do well in the league, well enough in the league for you, so you establish yourself financially within the Premier League so therefore you know they pay for themselves that way it's 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 a, it's a broader I know it's a very broad issue but I thought Sean had got it in one there where you've got this generation of kids are they going to play probably not with you know going back to like the the changing of managers you know Watford we've had five in a year um, yep. seven in three is that a bad thing having that many managers or do do we need to have Graham Taylor for you know ten year periods and who's in charge of everything. Yeah, I'm pretty biased about that one because you know as, as a young as a young journo, I threw in my A levels at the at Watford Grammar School to, to join the Observer with Ollie Phillips. Mm. Graham was my first sort of manager. I was a little bit Mike Keane, but but Graham really I I grew up with you know quite literally as a you know seventeen seventeen year old, um, and I saw how someone with that power of personality can actually galvanised an entire community and a pretty more, you know, Watford was a pretty moribund football club when he turned up. I'm biased that I think it is good that you can have someone with that dynastic approach. I do think that you need time to develop a strategy and, you know, fulfil that strategy in the way that, say, Ken Jackie did at Millwall. He had five years there. Um, there are, it, it is frightening when you look around now uh, we've got Arsene Wenger, who paid me a fantastic professional compliment by doing the forward to the book, nearly 19 years at Arsenal. Paul Tisdale, who's a fascinating character, probably culturally more suited to cricket, which he loves, than football. Now, he's been at Exeter, what, nine years? Then you're looking at someone like Carl, uh, Carl Robinson at uh, Milton Keynes, who's been there five years. Dino Smith, four years at Walsall. These guys have had a chance to actually develop something. And so if you look at, uh, at Milwaukee's Dons, Carl has a, almost like an analytic approach looking at the whole structure of the football club in terms of you know, the way they play, real liaison with, with, with the, the academy, uh, again, using his um, wider reputation as a development coach in the way that Ken did at Millwall to get really top-quality loan players from Premier League clubs in. Um, I think that's better than as you say, doing five in ten months. And it's it's what I call the light bulb theory of management. Oh, well, we just screw that one in and, and that'll last for ten minutes or two two minutes or 
two years, but you know we can soon get another one in. I think my well, I, well, I feel that, that that Watford have have lost is the culture of of coaching, um, which essentially was developed. Uh, obviously, you know, it had the the bedrock of, of what Graham did earlier on. But I think it was like when A.D. came in, A.D. Boothroyd, who's also in the book, yeah. he developed, a, you know, there was this can-do culture, there was this why-not culture, there was this look at us, we're doing some, some you know, they, he was pretty radical, and, and he galvanised, you know, I was at the playoff final in, in 06, and, you know, I saw what he'd done there, uh, and he got a club up which really had no right to get up, you know, um, it, I thought it was a fantastic achievement, Ran out a bit of a steam, but then you, you so you had Andy, uh, sorry, you had AD, you had Brendan, Malky Mackay had a couple of goes, then Sean, but there were also other people produced by that that no one really pays attention to. Mm. You know, Mark Warburton developed crucially at Watford uh, in that in the academy. Even someone like Chrissy Powell, who's you know, developed Charlton's now at Huddersfield. When AD brought him into Watford in 06 for a season, AD, part of the deal almost was that, that Chrissy helped out doing some, some, some coaching, uh, you know, in the age group levels. So he began, you know, so his education as a coach was furthered while he was almost winding down as a footballer. So Watford had this great culture of producing British coaches and managers. And I think something was lost when that culture died out. Basically, when I suppose when Sean was replaced by by, by um, Zola. Yeah, I mean, we're a, we're a Watford podcast, Mike, as you know, and we yeah. we wouldn't be doing our job properly if we didn't we didn't play devil's advocate. And yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, and, definitely. Yeah. And, and some fellow supporters might argue that you know the the excellent numbers we had of academy graduates coming through was born out of necessity. And you mm. look at what happened to a lot of those players; they got blooded in the first team under under those guys you've just mentioned. Look where they are now, and a lot of them are in non-league or, or have dropped down the leagues and haven't really kicked on. And whilst it was great, and we were very proud of Watford for for doing that, we could point to our academy record. What it actually delivered in in tangible terms wasn't a lot, and and it hasn't actually been great careers for those those players either. Um, and and absolutely, you're right to to mention the likes of Warburton and and those those coaches coming through. But again, it was almost as if they didn't really have the tools to do anything more. You know, you, any, anyone outside the Vicarage Road bubble, and I know you've got, you, 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 you were a Watford supporter, and we are, anyone outside that Vicarage Road bubble won't really know or, quite frankly, care because Watford didn't make any waves. We were proud of Watford for what they were doing. They had, to use your phrase earlier, you know, shiny buttons. That's all they had. They didn't have two brass farthings to rub together. So we were creating something that we were proud of, but in the wider footballing world, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Watford were a nothing, nothing club, bobbing along, barely surviving. Um, and now, but, it, it, but then it was a club that did. You know, so, for instance, we take the academy and and you know the, the link up, the educational link up with Harefield sure. that, that, that Wolves oversaw. Yeah. You know that actually, you know, was brave. It was idealistic, sure, but I thought that was a very. You know, and people are looking at those sort of models now. Yeah. In, when we're looking at um, development, I think where you, I think, I think the, the, you know the, the problem is is that when you have that that sort of domino effect, where you went from Sonino, Oscar Garcia, well, you know, to be, you know that was that was a, 
you know, hugely unfortunate yes. you know, to Oscar. Um, uh, McKinley, I thought, was a disgrace. <laughs> uh, Mike, just on Billy McKinley, I wonder, I wonder whether, knowing the range of managers that you do and knowing the yeah. game that you do, do you think managers might, some managers might actually respect in some way what the Pozzos did? Because I think they, what they did, they worked, they thought they'd made a mistake and and they acted quickly. I think, uh, anecdotally, I think Billy McKinley might have realised that he was in the wrong job as well. So, but do you think that some managers might say, well, at least there's an owner who's going to say, right, front up, knock on your door and say, we've made a terrible mistake. Obviously, it's it was disastrous. There's, there's no way of... Of, of 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 couching it any differently, but mm. would better that than death by a thousand cuts, letting it go six months and trying to sort of, I don't know, ease them out of the door. Do you know well, what I mean? Do you know what I'm getting? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I take I take your point, but I think, well, I, I'll, I'll reflect the the views of managers was that I think there was a huge you know professional disrespect paid to him, mm. and it also it, again. What it what it what it did point out was the almost um, I was going to say amateurish that's probably too harsh but certainly very slack recruitment processes that there are in, that there are in modern football um, you know the LMA uh, Richard Bevan in the book was you know he says that you know some of the, you know, the the contracts are usually sort of cut and paste jobs from from previous incumbents. They don't do due diligence, and it was actually funny. I did another book called The No MN, which which looked at scouting, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and went went on the road with those guys. And there's a there's a sort of parallel between recruitment of footballers and recruitment of managers, hmm. because there is no thought given for suitability of personality. There's no thought given to whether or not someone will fit into a greater structure or understand the culture or be be able to to get the best out of themselves and the McKinley thing, basically to me, I just thought, well, why appoint him? Well, you know, why appoint him? And it was that 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 seemed to me it, it seemed to be a knee jerk, a rushed affair. Now, and I'm I'm speaking you know, as an outsider here, just looking in, but talking. But I'm, what I'm also doing is reflecting the the views of 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 his fellow pros that they just thought that that's beyond the that's beyond the pale that. I think we also have to be really realistic that there is a degree of envy, there's a degree of resistance to some, you know, a group like the Potsos, mm. who, let's, you know, and I, I don't agree with what they what they do, but what I will acknowledge is that they are fantastic at what they do. Doing the, the scout book, the Nowhere Men, I knew a lot about the way that they worked and that global structure that they have. They're playing the system, and you know Watford now because they're in the Premier League will benefit for that because Watford is now the parent club essentially, not Udinese anymore. It's, you know, it's not certainly not Granada. You might get the old player like I know Niam came from um, Granada, didn't he? That's where the issues are. I think is that everything at Watford they've got this interchangeable manager system going on. Now I was very surprised you know, by Yukanovic. It seemed to go down to money, so that's fair enough probably, but. And I think that I think the one thing is very key to this, and it's funny enough, it goes back to one of the characters in the Nowhere Men, which is Dean Austin. I, I, you know, just know very well doing that book. Yeah. Really good guy. He obviously worked with Brendan as assistant at Watford before. He was desperate to get back in when I was with him. He was scouting, but he was obviously he was a coach, and we had we we literally spent hours talking about it. Really good guy. Now, I think it's fantastic that he's gone back in at Watford. 
and it was probably, I think, one of the shrewdest moves that the owners did last season was to get someone in there because you have this multicultural melting pot, but to have someone like Dino in there, one is a he's a very good coach. Secondly, he is a readily recognisable British football man, and thirdly, he's got great ambition. And I thought that works really well. And I know he's I know he gets you know obviously I speak to him quite a lot. And I know he admires Kike Flores. And to be fair, when you've got uh, a coach who you know, won the Europa League with Atletico Madrid and he got Valencia into the Champions League quarterfinals, so you know, that, he's got some pedigree, that guy. Yeah. But it is interesting. As I say, you know, I, I, look at, I look at Watford and I just see a club which is beholden to a business principle rather than a football principle. And I think people understand understand your your point of view. Um, I think a lot of Watford supporters, of course, are coming from the, you know, as football supporters, we're very in the now. We that's 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 just the way we oh, are. Yeah, and, no, and listen, people yeah, people I, think of where we came from under under Lawrence Bassini to oh, yeah. from almost well, being you know you're looking at AFC Watford to to being in the Premier League and and Watford supporters yeah. are I think slowly but surely are sort of coming to terms with with a lot of the situations that perhaps people outside can see a bit clearer and. And, and thinking about it but Ed, Mike it's been yeah. an absolutely fascinating chat really appreciate your, your time that's a pleasure just to, just to wrap up one final question yeah sure Mike Calvin FC who do you choose to manage it oh that's a great one it has to be current if it has to be current oh blimey I tell you what, I really like Jurgen Klopp he doesn't take himself that seriously but there were quiet little things that he did at, at, at Borussia Dortmund, away from the glare, that really impressed me in terms of, you know, just, just basic, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a heck of a coach. I think he'd be brilliant in English football. Uh, and I know in saying that, I'm detonating my argument that we should get more British coaches <laughs> in there. <laughs> if you're asking all-time, uh, Brian Clough. Wow. Uh, I was really lucky as a, as a very young journalist I broke through quite early as a kid. I left the Observer after about 18 months, and I found myself in 1981 as a 20-year-old, 21-year-old, something like that, covering Nottingham Forest winning the European Cup. And Cluffy was fantastic. Uh, uh, I was terrified of him as a young boy. They won in Madrid, and, and he, to all the press, press lads, and we posed with the cup in front of the plane that was taking us all home. And it was brilliant, but... One very quick story that, that Sean Dyche told me about him, which sums him up. You know, Dyche, as, as he said, you know, I know you're not going to believe this, but I was actually quite a tricky little midfield player when I started off. And Cluffy always used to say, you know, young ginger, which is what he called him, you come into the dressing room and sit next to the player who plays in your position, the senior guy. So he said, he said, we, you know, he said two or three of us would go into the dressing room before a game and just sit there and drink it all in and just get some experience about what being a proper grown-up football is about. And so this one day that Cluffy got a football, put it in one hand, and he crawled on his hands and knees across the dressing room until <laughs> he went to the middle of the dressing room. And he laid a towel down and he put the football on top of the towel. And it didn't say a word when he's doing all this. Then he crawled back to where he was sitting, sat. And in those days, you know, most most dressing rooms now are, you know, he's got the iPods and you know the the, the beatboxes and God knows what else is going on. It's, it's carnage, poorly. But he was 
quiet. And Cluffy just sat there and pointed at the football. Didn't do anything. And this was a, this was about five to three, ten to three. And the buzzer goes, you know, because when you know, you're summoned by the referee. And he kept pointing, and the players are just beginning to get up because obviously you know the the, the linesman's knocking on the on the door to check their studs. He keeps pointing. He says, "Captain, take good care of her." <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. And that's it. And, and 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 Sean said, he said, I went back to my dad that night and I said, Dad, he said, look, you know, this great tactician and this wonderful man, he said, this is what he did. And he said, my dad thought I was winding him up. <laughs> Brilliant. And so, yeah, yeah, Cluffy would be my I think. Brilliant. Mike, thanks so much, Mike. Really appreciate it. That's a pleasure. The book's out now to buy. It's called Living on the Volcano, The Secrets of Surviving as a Football Manager. It is by Michael Calvin and should be available in your local, if you have one in Watford, bookstore or available online somewhere else. Thanks again for listening. Remember, you can subscribe to these short podcasts uh, and also the longer podcasts that we do once a month by going to iTunes, search or from the Rookery End and subscribe to both channels. The plan is we'll do monthly podcasts where we look back at a, a month worth of what for football as we've been doing for five seasons, what's been going on the pitch, how's the story developing, how are we feeling as, as football fans, plus a short channel which you can get this podcast from is going to be about the wider Watford world, books, authors like this one from today plus chatting to people like Kevin Affleck who's covering Watford and just talking to the wider Watford family and doing a few more podcasts for you this season if we can fit them in thanks for listening make sure you subscribe tell your friends come on you ones a podcast made by Watford fans fans for Watford fans from the rookery end